Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. Chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. In our time together last week, we observed Paul reinforcing uh, what he was attempting to say in terms of suffering and endurance and suffering by referencing an ancient hymn. And we learned from that lesson that success and failure are both options. They're both possibilities in the Christian life. Endurance under suffering is expected of the believer, but it is far from a sure thing. There's something, though, that we can be certain of, and that is that once received, we cannot lose eternal life. For even if we fail to endure and end up denying our Lord, He will always act in a faithful manner toward His children. Read along with me the verses of this hymn. It begins in verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. Of course, that's not the hymn, but Paul is pulling from, his, from this ancient hymn. We just have this fragment of it. And Paul's saying, the words of this hymn are trustworthy. They're, they're true, and I'm going to use them to help validate my point. He says, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. More on that last phrase in just a few moments. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what the, what the tune was? that they used to sing this song. But let's briefly review the hymn, and then we'll swing back and move on into verse 14. Line 1, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. The first line references the believer's baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like for you to hold your place here for just a moment. Go back a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Just for a moment, I'd like to go back to this passage and, and remind you of this very important event, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Actually, in verse 12, I say, for, for even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ's. Now, what Paul's been doing here, he's been talking about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, I think, is one of the most important verses in chapters 12, uh, 13, and 14. In that it says to each one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. My personal view is that that particular phrase covers and dictates what, what happens with the rest of Paul's statement about spiritual gifts. In other words, if you find a, someone that's saying that they're exercising a spiritual gift and it's only for their good, if it's not for someone else's good, if it's not for the common good, then it's not a spiritual gift, not at least as defined by the Apostle Paul which eliminates right off the bat, I mean, completely takes it right off the table, the current, the current manifestation of this idea of the gift of tongues in most churches, because people are speaking a heavenly language between them and God, and that doesn't qualify as a spiritual gift. I hope you see that. But since that aren't, it's, not, it's not our subject tonight, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this passage is, let's go back now in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. Now this baptism by the Holy Spirit takes each believer and places them into the body of Christ. Theologians also say this baptism takes each believer and places you into union with Christ. A couple key things here. For by one spirit we were all baptized, not just some. And remember this is written to the church at Corinth. Uh, a church that was known for its carnality, not its spirituality, yet all the people that Paul is speaking to in his original audience, all of them have been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. And actually, if you look closely at the verb, which is separated by the word all, were baptized, that's a 
past tense verb. You see that? In the Greek, that's an aorist tense, but it's a past tense. It's already happened. Now, there's only one way that, that, that those two things could, um, could fit together in a true statement. We were all baptized by means of this one spirit, or by means of one spirit into one body. And the only way that that can work is if that baptism occurred at the moment of faith. There's no other way it could include all and be a past tense. You see that? Now, if he had said, we all will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, then you could leave the door open like John Wesley did. He left the door cracked, and, and that was one of the... I love Wesley, I, I really do, but that was one error that he made that, that opened the door for the future Pentecostal movement, the future charismatic movement. Is he saw a delay in the period of time between the time a, a person was saved and the time that they were entered into the body of Christ by means of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's not here. We were all baptized, and you have a past tense verb, and the inclusiveness of all. Now, let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. This is a reference from this hymn, and Paul is using it to make his point, back to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 6, verse 8, Paul says, If we died with Christ... We believe that we also will live together with him. And, and in that reference in chapter 6, Paul is referring back to the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes, his, takes each of us and places us into the body of Christ at the moment that faith is exercised. We are intimately, watch, intimately united with Christ, identified with Christ by means of the Spirit's baptism, both with his death and with his life. It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. You see why expositors over the centuries have always seen the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this passage. Because the two main elements are there. That's why Paul's arguing in Romans 6. That since we are now identified with Jesus Christ rather than the old headship. Remember the two headships from Romans 5? There, there was the headship of Adam, our old headship, and the headship of Christ. You're under one or the other. You can't be under both. But sometimes we're under the headship of Christ, but we act like we're under the headship of Adam. That was part of the whole idea behind Romans 6. Well, well Paul, Paul brings that all together in one statement. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. We have died with him. This could actually read. And we do live with him. This is sometimes referred to by theologians as positional sanctification. So if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That's line one. Line two of this hymn, if we endure, we shall also reign. Now watch, only those who endure reign. Many times I've been asked the question, actually some, it's not a question, it's the form of a statement. <laughs> you know, all believers will reign with Christ. I don't see that in the text. Actually, this is one of the places where I don't see it. I see if you endure, you'll reign. But if you don't endure, you won't. Now, some believers take a, take a theology that if you are a believer, you will endure. You'll, you'll persevere in good works to the end of your life. It's called the perseverance of the saints. It's the fifth point of, uh, of Calvinism. But I don't hold to that. That's, if, if it was a sure thing that we were all going to endure, then why do we have to be exhorted to endure so much? Why do we have to be warned against not enduring? If we endure, we'll reign. Now remember the context, the context, that's a huge word, and I hope you've learned it by now. Back when we had the Bible study methods course about a year, year and a half ago, and, and as we go through each lesson, we, we always set the context for you. The context of Paul's usage of this hymn is endurance under suffering for Christ. Remember Paul's suffering? We've listed it twice now, but... And I'm very happy to say that few of us will be called upon 
to suffer in the way that Paul suffered, in the variety of different ways that Paul suffered. Frankly, I'll, I'll be honest. I hope I'm not called upon to suffer in the way that Paul suffered. But whatever suffering comes our way, and suffering will enter into each of your lives. If anybody ever comes to you and tells you that it won't, they're lying to you. If anybody ever comes and tells you if you're suffering, you're sinful, they're lying to you. That's not biblical. Suffering's going to enter into each of our lives. It's appointed us not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, Paul tells the Philippian church. When suffering does come our way, it's, it's, not, it's not right for us to compare our suffering to Paul's suffering. It's not right for us to compare our suffering to anybody else's suffering. We all have to handle our own. Whatever's on our plate is what we have to handle, not what's on somebody else's plate. And when we do experience this kind of suffering, we're expected to handle it with grace and poise and faithfulness, whatever the suffering may be, whatever God allows to come your way. And I want to remind you, not for the first time, that God is not going to allow anything to get to you that hasn't passed through his fingers first. Nothing's going to get to you. Nothing, no matter how how tragic it seems, is going to get to you that has not passed through God's fingers first. Meaning, if it gets to you, he's allowed it. He might not be the direct cause of it. Sometimes Satan is. Think of Job. Satan didn't get his way with Job without God's permission. And God set the parameters, remember? You can do this and this, but you can't kill him. So nothing is going to get to you that hasn't passed through God's fingers. That's so important. It's in the middle of the night when we wonder about that, when we think we're all by ourselves on this. Lord, you do know I'm suffering. <laughs> you know, he knows. He's always known. And he let it get to you because he knew you could take, you could take it. He's not going to let anything get to you that you can't handle. Granted, I know what you're thinking. Lord, I would just, just assume not be this mature. <laughs> you know, if, if, if you're telling me that I'm mature enough to handle this, let's back up a little bit. <laughs> but no, that's not the answer. If it got to you, you have the spiritual resources to handle it. And we're expected to handle it with dignity. So if we endure, now that endurance in context, in context is endurance and suffering. If we endure, we'll also reign. Open line three. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So many throughout the history of interpretation of this passage have jumped to the conclusion from this line, from line three, that we can lose our salvation. The problem with that jumping to that particular conclusion is that you didn't read the fourth line. This doesn't mean that a believer will lose their salvation, but it does expose the reality that believers can and do deny their Lord. That is a reality. Peter did it in a very public way. We most often do it in a little bit more of a private way. But denial of Christ, at least at one time or another, in one form or another, whether verbally or with the way we live our lives, the denial of Christ is a reality for the vast majority of us. In context, again, every time we don't endure, we're denying Christ. Let me tell you how this works. Something comes along. You don't particularly appreciate it. You don't think you're ready for it. You don't think it's fair. 
and then you get mad at God. Now, let me tell you, that is not enduring. That's not handling it with poise and faithfulness and integrity. Getting mad at God is, is an obscenity. Now, and I don't mean to step on any more toes than I already have with the statement I just made. But I mean that. That's not something I want to encourage you to do. And I know some Christian writers do. They act like it's no big deal. Well, last time I looked, the God that we worship is the very creator of the universe. He's the sovereign of the universe. He holds our lives by a very thin thread, which could be snapped at any moment. Last time I looked, he's the one also that, that saved us from our lost estate by sending his eternal beloved son who had never injured him, who had never harmed him, who had never disappointed him at all, and had him pay the penalty that was due me in a very brutal, brutal, brutal way. And we're going to get mad at him? It doesn't make sense. It's an absurdity and it's, it's a, a, an obscenity to get mad at God. That's not enduring. Now, again, there's a whole lot more to the judgment seat of Christ than just this, the, just this but this is a, a part of it. So if we endure with him, we'll reign with him. Now, that's blessing at the judgment seat of Christ. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Now, he's not denying us entrance into the kingdom. Not at all. The denial there is a denial of blessing at the judgment seat of Christ. Again, in context, it's a denial of reigning with him. You see that? If we're to keep it tight within the context. In hermeneutics, we call this meaning rather than significance. The meaning, the tight meaning in the context of the passage is that if we endure through suffering, if we handle suffering properly, as Paul has been talking to Timothy about almost for a whole chapter now, then we're going to reign with him. That's meaning. If we deny him, then we won't reign with him. That's meaning. Can we expand that? Of course. There's other information in the scriptures about the judgment seat of Christ. There's Luke 19, Matthew 25, two parables that give us a whole lot more information about faithfulness and the, and the overall scope of what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the application section of the book of Romans. But in terms of this particular context, Paul is speaking about his topic, which is endurance under suffering, endurance under under the worst conditions in life. Uh, I'm going to say his name because we prayed about him tonight. He, he wouldn't like this, so I hope he never hears the tape. But our friend Gene Brown is, is really living this out right now, and I really hope that you continue to pray for Gene. He is in a tough spot. Uh, since this is on tape, I won't go into the medical situation, but, but he and Phyllis are going through a tough, tough time. They love each other so much. And Gene could easily... If he was to fail this test, he could easily start feeling sorry for himself. He could easily shake a fist at God. Why, you know, I'm serving you out here. This is the way that I'm doing. And Phyllis has been a wonderful, mature Christian woman. Why are you doing this to us? But that's not what he's doing. Oh, they're handling this so well. So well. He's a model for all of us. I appreciate him very much for what he's doing. So lines two and three. Present the experiential options for the believer, either endurance or denial. Now, in this context, those are the polar opposites. Both are possible realities. Both are possible. There will be periods of both for some of us, probably for most of us. I don't think hardly any of us are going to endure all the time under suffering with 100% success. And I hope that all of us don't deny all the time. I don't think that's much of a reality either. I guess it's theoretically possible. 
But since the Holy Spirit indwells you, I don't think it's very likely that we'll deny all the time. But he's going to evaluate at the judgment seat of Christ. Our Lord is going to evaluate at the judgment seat of Christ how we behaved on the whole. If we go to Luke 19, Matthew 25, on the whole, how faithful we were. But 2 Timothy, on the whole, how did we endure under suffering? So his denial is not a denial of eternal life. It's a denial of special reward at the judgment seat of Christ. In context, the denial of the opportunity to reign with him. And then in line four, one of my favorite lines in scripture, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. And then what some see, actually as Paul's comment on the hymn, he cannot deny himself. It makes sense to me that the hymn itself says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. And then the last phrase is Paul's comment on that hymn. God's made you a clear promise. If you trust Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. That's a promise that he's made you. You'll have eternal life. You'll have God's life. He takes his life and he gives it to you. So the possession of eternal life doesn't depend upon you. Never did, in fact. Not from day one it didn't depend on you. It always depended upon God. It depends on the character of God. I want to stop right now. I'm not going to, if this was a classroom setting, and perhaps another setting, I would call on a couple of you individually, but I'm not going to do that. But I just want you to think for a moment. We'll pause. If you were called upon to defend the doctrine of eternal security tonight, Nobody has to raise their hand. I don't want you to do that. But if you were called upon to defend the doctrine of eternal security tonight, I want you to think right now of at least three places you could go to to do that. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds. That should be enough time because if you're, if you're called upon on the spot, if you're having coffee with somebody at Starbucks, you can't very well say, hey, hold on just a minute. I think I've got those notes out in the car. Let me run and get that. That doesn't really work in the flow of a discussion. You need these things. This, this is an extremely important biblical truth. You need it right on the top of your head. Did anybody think of John chapter 4? The, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus offers her water that if she would drink this water, she would never be thirsty again. He's obviously not talking about literal water. She wants to know, where do I get this particular water that I would never be thirsty again? You see, she's not going to be thirsty again the first time she sins. She'll never be thirsty again. Did anybody think of John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29? The son has you in his grip. The son knows those who are his. He's got you in his grip. He's not going to let you go. And if that wasn't good enough, the father has you in his grip as well. You're you're double-gripped. Two omnipotent persons have you in their grip. You're not going to get out from one, much less another. And that, that is silly nonsense that I know nobody else can get me outside of God's grip, but I can get myself out. I don't think so, Scooter. It doesn't work that way. You're not strong enough to overpower omnipotence either. Oh, and then the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. He's got you sealed to the day of redemption. Not sealed to the next time you sin. You can't carve your way out of that ceiling either. He's got you sealed to the day of redemption. And then my favorite, actually one of the passages I think that is indisputable, Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39, for I am persuaded, Paul concludes that great chapter 8, one of the greatest theological chapters in all of the Bible, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that line, things present or things to come. There is no future judgment 
that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul's technical term for being a believer. If anyone wants to object to the doctrine of eternal security, they need to go through those passages first. They need, they need to explain those passages first if they wanted to object to the doctrine of eternal security. They typically won't do that. Let me tell you how it goes. Typically they'll say, well, you're telling me. I always love that. You're telling me that I can do anything I want to and I can still go to heaven. Now, the temptation to say, no, no, that's not really what I said. Now, if you, you know, you really, you got, that's, that's not the direction to go. So I'm telling you what the scriptures say. I'm saying you can drink this water and you'll never be thirsty again. That God's got you, that God the Father has you in his grip, the Son has you in his grip, the Holy Spirit has you sealed to the day of redemption, and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus. Now, you deal with that first. Then we'll go to your passages. And they have a couple. There are problem passages. This is one thing I learned from Bob Leitner in seminary. Certain doctrines, if there are problem passages, you admit there are problem passages. Then you deal with them and you work with them. But these are solid these are the foundation. You have to deal with these first before you deal with the obscure passages that people call problems. Now, in verse 14, Paul continues. Now, a new paragraph has begun, uh, a new thought, but not entirely a new thought. I'll reference that in a moment. Paul says in verse 14, remind them, he's speaking to, Peter, uh, to uh, Timothy, rather, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Another way that could be translated is to remind them of these things, solemnly charge them before God not to fight about words, which will result in nothing beneficial, but leads to the ruin of those listening. The reference of the, the term these things is up for some debate, but the best understanding is that while in a sense it refers to everything that Paul has said from the beginning of the book up until now, the previous three verses are especially in view. This hymn, the, the idea of endurance under suffering versus denying him under suffering. The fact that God is faithful even if we're faithless. So that's probably the, the near reference, the, the, the specific these things, but I, I'm sure there is a sense in which the entirety of the book is in view. Remind them of these things. This is not an option for, for Paul uh, and, and Timothy. This is a mandate for these two. In Timothy's teaching, he was to remind those under his leadership of the importance of endurance in suffering, and watch, and that fighting over trivial non-essentials is not only a waste of time, as he had already told Timothy in the first letter that he wrote, it's not only a waste of time, but would lead to the destruction of those who participated, as well as those who were within listening range of the discussion. Timothy must take this charge seriously. You see what Paul says? He's to solemnly charge them before God. God is his witness. Remind them of these things and charge them in the presence of God not to fight. That's that word wrangle. Not to fight about words, which is not beneficial and leads to the ruin of the hearers. This is important. Let me first explain what Paul is not saying. Sometimes that's helpful to do that. He is not. I want you to listen carefully to this because I thought about this a lot. 
I think it's an occupational hazard for those who have grown up in, in churches that teach the Word of God. It's an occupational hazard. I've witnessed it for people almost to become bored with good theology. I've already got that. Yeah, I heard that one about eternal security before. Yeah, I know you did. That's why I tested you. I don't know how many of those passages you got, but that's between you and the Lord. I know you know the doctrine of eternal security, but do you know it well enough to defend it? Those are two different things. And do you know, do you know it well enough to live it? You, know, you can live the doctrine of eternal security. That means you're living your life with a sense of comfort and a sense of dedication to the Lord because of what he's done for you, not as a license to sin. That's a gross misapplication of the doctrine of eternal security. Grotesque. So I find that sometimes this is an occupational hazard for those who have grown up in doctrinal churches, in, in churches that have been very serious about teaching the Word, to argue or to fight over non-essential, trivial things. It's like, it's like we've got all the big things down, now let's fight over the little ones. So this is not just a theoretical classroom thing somewhere. This could be where you live. If it, the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, don't. But Paul is not asserting by saying this. He is not asserting that exegetes should not have healthy discussions about the finer points of the holy text. That's not what he's saying when he says we ought not to argue about words. In the very next verse, he's going to tell us to rightly divide the word of truth, or perhaps to competently handle the word of truth. So Paul would never advocate sloppiness with the text. Never, never, never. He, so he's not saying that those who are scholars should not have healthy discussions about the fine points of the text. In fact, you might be surprised at some of the discussions that take place at the highest levels of biblical scholarship. And these discussions are beneficial and necessary. And sometimes they can get rather enthusiastic, rather lively. Sometimes they look like a knockdown drag out between Two scholars that, that teach at the same seminary, the same Bible college. But those who participate in those kind of discussions or debates can handle it. And the ultimate goal is to rightly divide the word of truth, to competently handle what the text says. Occasionally, as these type of discussions progress, word will leak out to larger audiences as to the content of these debates. And then some, without the ability to understand the issues, or perhaps with the ability but with an agenda that has little to do with the issues, sometimes people overreact when they hear of discussions that are taking place in scholarly circles, and they condemn the participants, or perhaps even the institution in which the discussion is taking place. And that's unfortunate. Scholars need the freedom to engage in healthy debate. Iron sharpens iron. They need that. I doubt that Rembrandt would have taken kindly to someone taking a peek at one of his unfinished paintings and then gone off and written critically of it. He would have said, it's a work in progress. You haven't seen the final project yet. There's plenty of time for criticism after a work is completed. So wait. Don't be so quick to criticize before you know all the facts. Don't be so quick to criticize those who are in a position of scholarship, high levels of scholarship, while they're having their discussion. At least wait till the discussion is over with. 
and then some pronouncement is made. Then criticize all you want. But you got to have an opportunity to hash things out. Don't be so quick to condemn when you're not in a position to do so competently. It makes, uh, it makes the condemner look bad when that happens. There's plenty of time. Once again, there's plenty of time for condemnation after high-level theological debate has been completed. After you've had time to assimilate what has been said and come to a reasonable conclusion. There's going to be plenty of time for that. Frankly, this is why I don't consider it healthy for larger general audiences to attend pastors that are designed, or to attend conferences rather, that are designed for pastors and biblical scholars. Because in these conferences, there must be freedom for good theological debate following the presentation of the papers. And that debate is not going to occur if the audience is too broad. It's just human nature. It's not going to happen. I presented papers at pastors' conferences a number of times. Will has presented papers at scholarly conferences, and we expect to be challenged. I mean, that's just, that's just part of it. You prepare for it. You try to think of any particular contingency, but you expect to be challenged. And sometimes that challenge can get hot. But it's good and it's healthy. And then you go to lunch with a person that was challenging you. There's, there's nothing personal. It's the old iron sharpening iron thing again. That's why I suggested to Dr. Meisinger a couple years ago that the Chafer Conference be changed from a pastor's conference to a Bible conference, to a broader Bible conference. And they did it. And I applaud him for it. It was a wise move. So Paul here is, by, by saying that, that we ought not to fight about words, he is not against healthy theological debate or even a theological debate about a particular word in the Greek text. That's not what he's saying. But if that's not what he's saying, what is he saying? Well, what he is saying is that believers can become absorbed in trivialities that are non-essentials when it comes to the glorification of God in our lives. Now, the particular doctrine that he's playing off of here is the doctrine of eternal security. Now, I hope that everyone would realize that's an essential. That's a pillar of the Christian faith. And I find it interesting that that's the one that he uses as an illustration. Or even the idea that we should suffer patiently, that we should suffer with dignity, that we should suffer in faithfulness. Those aren't small things. But we can become absorbed. All of us have done it at one time or another. In trivialities... Just taking one from a past generation, because I've already stepped on enough toes and I don't want to do it anymore. Taking one from a past generation, they used to argue over how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't keep me up at night. <laughs> Sorry. Doesn't do it. It's a triviality. It's a non-essential. I don't care how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. It's not important. It has nothing to do with my spiritual life or yours. Or whether my aunt or uncle or grandma is going to spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. Or whether you are. It's got nothing to do with my glorification of the Lord. That's what he's talking about when he says to fight over words. He's talking about triviality. This is something that we need to avoid. We must avoid it. Believers don't sometimes. Now, so let me give you some advice. If you're coming upon an issue and you're wondering whether you should go to battle over it. First, before you start a war, you better make sure that you're right 
first about your uh, willingness to do battle. And then second, you need to make sure that whatever you're going to do battle over is worth fighting for. You gotta, you gotta ask yourself, is this worth losing a friend over? Is this worth splitting a church over? Is this worth me losing my reputation over by the way I've handled it? And some things may be, to be sure. I've, I've taught at several conferences overseas now where my topic seems to get coming up of some of the basic doctrines of salvation and eternal security was one of them. And people get really hot. The last two people, somebody has, has come all the way up to the stage and, and argue with me right here. And, and the last fellow did it, did it very disrespectfully, almost violently. And I told him, I didn't know he spoke English, but I was telling him through the translator after he did his whole big uh, production. I said, well, I assume he just asked that respectfully. <laughs> and the whole audience laughed because they knew that he didn't. And I said, then he, then he gave me this glare, and I said, but if he didn't, tell him to sit down because I'm not going to answer his question for him if he's going to ask it disrespectfully. So even if it's something that's a legitimate beef, it needs to be done respectfully if you're going to have theological discourse. You need to be sure, first, that you're right, second, that what you're discussing is worth fighting for, and there are things that are. But a lot of times it's not. A lot of times we're not fighting over doctrinal statement issues. We're, we're fighting over issues of personal preference. And this is not right. In fact, I want to point something out to you. The word here that is, um, that is translated leads to the ruin of the hearers is the word catastrophe, which means a state of total ruin or destruction. But I want to say that word again, catastrophe. Do you hear an English word there? You ought to, yeah. yeah. Catastrophe. It's a catastrophe to do this. It will lead to catastrophe. So don't do it. <laughs> you know, there's simply not enough time to wrangle, to fight about trivial non-essentials. I don't know, but you, I don't have enough time. The clock's ticking. <laughs> All of us have a certain amount of seconds that we can, we can spend on this. Or we're going to sleep for, for a third of them. You know? So taking that out of the mixture, I don't have enough time. Neither do a lot of you either. <laughs> to, to just to spend it on non-beneficial pursuits. Don't invite catastrophe. Don't invite catastrophe by wasting the precious moments that we have in needless fighting over trivialities. Please take note. Paul said it is useless. Another way to, to understand that is it's not beneficial. But not only is it not beneficial, it's destructive. It's catastrophic. Well, more on this next time when we study verse 15.